your verdict. Let's pray together. Lord God, I, again, these are words that are amazing to us, uh, that overwhelm us as we read them, that shock us even still, though we've read them before. And yet here they are describing what you, Jesus, endured for our sake. Thank you. Help us to hear. Help us to understand. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you had the opportunity to serve on a jury? Not only getting your summons in the mail, but actually going to the court and being selected as one of the jurors in a case. If you have, you know the weightiness of the responsibility that rests upon you in that role. You listen to the arguments, you listen to the presentation of the lawyers, to the witnesses as they give their explanations of what they saw or what they heard, and then at the end of the trial, you retire with the other jurors and deliberate. You consider, you think about the things that you've heard, you talk about them, you weigh them one against the other, you debate with one another. You, you function with one another as sounding boards. Did you hear this? What did you think about this particular point? And you struggle with it because you recognize the impact of what you're about to decide on this person. And at some point in that process, you come to a decision. On the one hand, you come to a personal decision. You've wrestled with the evidence. You've listened to the arguments. You have to decide personally what you think about this person the accused, guilty or innocent. And as much and hopefully as you've come to a personal decision, you also come to a group decision as the jury. This is what we think. And you return to the courtroom, and the judge turns to you and says, have you reached a verdict? Thus, amongst the thoughts that we ought have as we reflect upon the trial of Jesus today is, have you reached a verdict? Have you come to your decision about who Jesus is? Who do you say that he is? It's an important question, for here's the reality. If he is who he says he is, then at some day in the future, the tables are going to be turned. The accused, Jesus, will no longer be the accused. The accused will become the judge. In that day, you better know how you've responded in evaluating and declaring and deciding who Jesus is. Now, if I were to outline for us today our text, if I were to outline the sermon for us today, it would go something like this. The charges, the arguments, the comportment of the accusers, the comportment of the accused, because we're always interested in those things in a trial, right? So you get trial reporting and you want to know how did, how did those various groups react, act, when something was said, when this was said. And then finally, the verdict, theirs and yours. That said, I don't want to go by outline today, but if you'd like to have an outline, you can fit the parts of the uh, sermon into that. I really rather would just, frankly, walk through the text that is before us today. No outline, uh, just we've got it right here in front of us. Let's move together through this and comment as we go along. And so, in doing that, 
We begin with verse 66 at daybreak. After a night of informal examination before the high priest and before other elders, and that is recorded for us more in the other Gospels than it is here in Luke, Jesus is brought by the leaders to their council. It was uh, probably many of the same people who were involved in the night examination who were now gathered together in the official council, the Sanhedrin, those who had a responsibility when gathered to govern the people to make decisions in cases. And that type of an assembly, that official assembly, could not take place at night. It was one of the rules that it could only take place in the morning. And so all that had been done throughout the course of the night in his arrest and then the things following that was preparation for this trial. And that's exactly what we see when the day came, the assembly of the elders gathered together, they took him over to the council and had this particular trial. And as seems clear to us when we read this, things were being done rather expeditiously. There are several possible reasons why they're trying to move through things so quickly. In the first place, they seem to have gathered a bit of momentum. So they've been afraid of the people all along, and now they've got a little bit of momentum. They've been able to do a lot of things with the arrest of Jesus, with getting people together to say things about him under the cover of darkness, and they don't want to give either the people or the disciples an opportunity to regroup, to rethink. So the disciples have scattered. They've abandoned the Lord. And they want to make the most, that is, the leaders want to make the most of this opportunity that they've got and not let it slip by. Another reason is that in order for them to get to the Roman court, the Romans usually met and received cases like this in the morning, as we know from historical records. So they want to get it done and get it to Pilate as quickly as they can that morning. And then a third reason is to get things done by the Sabbath. It's Friday morning, the Sabbath is approaching. We want to get this done, get things taken care of before that takes place. And so they gather together and they ask these questions. Verse 67, if you are the Christ, tell us. Tell us. And then allow me to put in verse 70. Are you the Son of God then? Those are the questions that they have for Jesus. Now, do recognize as we work our way through this that we've got a summary here, uh, that we've got statements that are going on that are being made in the course of this trial, but we're getting a lot of summary information. There's a lot more that went on than what we're seeing right here. You know that by the time that has taken place and by comparison with the other gospel writers who consider some of these things in greater detail. So we've got those two questions, and those two questions are put out there, and I think they at least give us pause and and make us want to ask two questions ourselves. One, what's the answer? there, There are the questions, what is the answer to those questions? And the second one that we want to ask when we read through this text is, why does Jesus answer in this way? Why is that his posture at this particular time? Let's go with the second question first. 67, uh, the second half of verse 67, this is Jesus responding. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. That's what Jesus says in response to them. 
he doesn't clearly answer them. He doesn't, he doesn't pull out his copy of the Nicene Creed and say, well, let me tell you who I am. I'm uh, begotten of the Father before our worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Now, that's, that's a joke, right? Nicene Creed is written a couple of hundred years, 325, 300 years later than this incident right here. But he doesn't do that. And part of us would really like him to do that. We'd really like him to use this opportunity to say it. They just put you on trial, Jesus, shut them up. Tell them exactly who you are. Show them exactly who you are. One of the things that I read or have read in preparation for this series where we're coming to the end of the Gospel of Luke, uh, a book by uh, uh, Phil Reich and, and Boyce called Jesus on Trial, a very thin little book. And one of the anecdotes that they have in there is that Johnny Cochran, the trial lawyer, was one time asked who you would like to have defended. Who would you most like to have defended that you didn't get an opportunity to defend? And his response was, Jesus of Nazareth, because just once I would have liked to have defended a truly innocent man. But he probably would have declined. He probably would have declined. And we want to say, Jesus, no, this is the opportunity. So why? Why doesn't he give us a more, a, a clearer explanation of who he is? And the, inter the answer is actually right here in the text. It's very simple as we have here in the text. They have no interest in the truth. They're unwilling to believe. They're unwilling to examine the claims that he would make. Now, they are throwing out terms. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? They're throwing out terms that are appropriate terms from Scripture, but their understanding of them is so clouded that they can't even see the fact that the answer is obvious to them or ought to be obvious to them. Jesus recognizes those are the right terms, but they do not want to, uh, to listen or to examine anymore whether or not He fits the bill of those terms. They cannot see how He could possibly be the one, and they've already made up their minds. But there are some specific things that we can say about these questions. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah, the one who was to come? Well, many people have made a claim to be the Messiah, and that in and of itself would have been significant for Jesus to say, but perhaps not blasphemous and perhaps not worthy of death if he had said, yes, I am the Christ, the Messiah. But when you combine it with this second question, are you the Son of God? Well, on the one hand, that by in and of itself could have been a very general statement. One of the sons of God, it's not often, but it's sometimes used in Scripture to be a very general term. By itself, not so bad. But combining together, these are getting very specific about who Jesus is and the identity that he has and they get, as one person writes, more than they bargained for in terms of the way Jesus responds in verse 68. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And that's a huge statement by Jesus. To take to himself, in this context, the title of the Son of Man, a clearly authoritative messianic title, that is used in Daniel and other places in the Old Testament. 
and to apply that to himself and to say, not only am I the Son of Man, but I am going to be seated next to the Father on high with power. He's got power, and I will be seated next to him with power is a way of saying, I'm going to be the one judging you. It's going to change. Right now, you look like you are sitting in the position of power. And remember uh, verse 53 from last week, we looked at this one. When Jesus is arrested, he says, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is it. This is your time that you've got right now. The power of darkness is at hand, but things are in the process of changing. From now on, I'm going to be seated there. And they get it. They get what he is saying. The idea is, did you, did you really just say that? Is that really what you just said to us? You just identified yourself in all of those specific ways. And Jesus says, you've said it. You have said it. And that is enough for them. No need for any other witnesses. You just condemned yourself. It's blasphemy. And we're taking you over to Pilate. And so they rush him over to the Roman prefect, the Roman governor of Judea, a cruel man, and they're sure that from this cruel man they'll be able to get a quick conviction, get a quick sentence out of him, and get the execution of Jesus. And so they bring him to Pilate with a series of charges that for us are recorded in chapter 23, verses 2 through 5. Again, this is a summary of the things that they have said and of this entire incident that is here. But basically, here's what they say. This guy is a troublemaker. He's stirring up people. He misleads the nation. He forbids the giving of the tribute, which is, of course, not what Jesus did at all. But nevertheless, that's the claim. And he makes the claim that he himself is Christ, a king stirs up the people. You can look at this in a couple of ways. You can see these as separate charges or really as one charge with some supporting subpoints underneath of it. He's a rabble-rouser. He's a troublemaker. He's stirring up people. He's a seditionist. And these are the particular things that he does of which he is guilty. These accusations and accusations like this have been made before of prophets, of God, of Jeremiah, of Elijah. Even, even Moses was accused of things that are similar to this. We saw that in the book of Exodus, accused both by Jews and Egyptian alike of things just like this. Pilate asks in Luke here one summary question for Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Is that true? And again, the simple response of Jesus is, you've said it. And you can read into that all that you'd like to read into it. You've said it. You made the statement. The key question before us and the key question then before Pilate is whether he's innocent or guilty. Jesus is on trial his teaching is the question. His claims are the question. His life is the question. It's all challenged. And Pilate looks at this, and frankly, with an extraordinarily, extraordinary amount of earthly wisdom, 
sees how flimsy this whole scenario is. He gets what's going on. The Jews are jealous. They don't like this guy because he is attracting lots of crowd. He understands what this situation is, and he looks at this man before him with no army and no authority and no appearance and no pomp, and he perceives absolutely no threat in Jesus. And in looking at this whole situation, he makes a statement of statement, a verdict of verdicts, and he says, he's not guilty. He has not done anything that is deserving of death. Now, let's be clear here. Pilate is not rendering verdict on who Jesus is. He's not saying he's not guilty because he is who he says he is. Pilate is, is, is making a statement that in one sense, it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't matter who he claims to be because he can't be a threat to anyone, certainly not to me. But the reality of what Pilate is also saying is, listen, this guy's done nothing wrong. You haven't been able to trumpet anything. He knows that had Jesus been guilty of anything, of anything that would have come close to a charge for death, it certainly would have been made known to him right now because he knows that's all they want to do. They want to get him to execute this guy. And so Pilate looks at this Jesus and he says, he's not guilty. In the words of Isaiah, he's done no wrong. In the words of Peter, he is the lamb without blemish or spot. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews, he's been tempted, but without sin. We'll return to this about Jesus in just a moment. But they continue to urge Pilate, no, no, no. He really is stirring up the people, and he's doing it here. He's done it from up in Galilee as well. And when Pilate hears mention of Galilee, it triggers something for him. Wait a minute. Did you say he's from Galilee? Did you say he's been doing these things in Galilee? Well, that comes under Herod's jurisdiction. Now, Herod was under Pilate, but this is an opportunity for Pilate to pass the buck a little bit to share it off. Now, don't think he's being friendly here with Herod. Remember that until this point, there had been enmity between Herod and Pilate. They didn't get along very well. So he thinks, oh, this is great. I'm going to give this to Herod. Let Herod make the decision. This will make him real popular. And so he pawns Jesus off to Herod. Herod is, he's got a little bit of Jewish blood mixed in him. He's not Jewish, but he's got a little bit of mixed in Jewish blood from somewhere way back. And for whatever reason, he's in Jerusalem. Was he in Jerusalem because it was the Passover? We do not know. But for whatever reason, he happens to be in Jerusalem, and Pilate knows that and sees the opportunity that is set before him. This is the Herod who had killed John the Baptist. And when Jesus comes to him, he is very glad to see Jesus. He had heard lots about Jesus, heard that Jesus was this great worker of miracles and of signs, and so he wants to see Jesus do some parlor tricks. Big ones, little ones, doesn't matter. Just do something for me. But Jesus will not play the game. He will not entertain Herod, and he will not return their venom. Though while he is there, 
The chief priests and scribes stood by. They kept vehemently accusing him. Pilate, I mean Herod and his court, treated him with contempt, and they mocked him. And Jesus opened not his mouth. Go back later to the word of assurance after our prayer of confession today. And you'll see it from Isaiah 53. He did not open his mouth. He submits himself to this injustice, to this cruelty. And we want him to do something else, don't we? Don't you want him to do something else? I mean, when Moses was before Pharaoh, he at least turned the staff into the serpent, consumed the other serpents. Don't you want maybe a moment like the transfiguration right now? A Sinai-type moment. Something to show the power that is before this puppet and to put him in his place. The early church recognized the incredible importance of the posture of Jesus right here. It is everything for our salvation that he opened not his mouth, but was like a lamb led to the slaughter and did not say anything. This is what is called in theological terms the passive obedience of Christ. Herod, sorry, Pilate affirmed the active obedience of Christ. This man's done nothing wrong. Before Herod is this passive obedience of Christ submitting to the will of his father, submitting to the will of these men. Why? Why didn't he do something there? The answer, of course, is to secure our salvation. He had to do nothing at that point. He had to stay quiet. He had to refuse to defend himself, refuse to show any signs. He had to fulfill Scripture. He had to fulfill Isaiah 53. He had to be numbered with transgressors to be considered one of the guilty. And in so doing, he secures our salvation, and he also provides for the saints in every age a model for how to endure unjust suffering. Peter would recognize this in the book of 1 Peter. How Jesus comports himself here is critical to how you and I lead a life of faith when things go badly. It makes a difference. So our salvation, not only our salvation, our sanctification is wrapped up in the posture of Jesus before Herod, before Pilate as well. Herod sends him back, jokingly dressed up as a king. Does he look more like a king to you now? I put all these clothes on him. Doesn't he look great? And we read that when Pilate gets him back, Pilate and Herod became friends that day. Now, that's not just a throwaway line that is included in the text by way of information. For the early church, that was confirmation of the fulfillment of Psalm 2. 
Why do the nations rage? Why do the leaders of the earth gather themselves together against the Lord and against his anointed? That's what's taking place here in the collusion between these two men. The nations are gathering together, Psalm 2, prophetic words about the Messiah and about the Son. And so right in context, Peter's preaching in the book of Acts, he sees that this is what is taking place here, the nations gathered together. That said, Pilate gets him back, and he says this again to the people, to the leaders, gathering them together, Herod and I agree, he's not guilty. Neither of us have found anything in him. Now, he says, so let me just beat him, and I'll set him free. That's to say, all right, maybe there's something I don't know. We'll make a lesson of him. I'll beat him and set him free. He says it twice. But, you know, he says this, and then he says it again. Verse 20, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. Verse 22, a third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. He's innocent. Get the point. He's innocent. He's innocent. There's nothing that this man has done wrong. Now, we'll steal a little bit of thunder from next week and the following week. But if you look a little bit further down in your scriptures, you see this affirmed two more times in this chapter itself. Once by the other who was being crucified next to Jesus, verse 41. And we, that is, are being crucified, we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then by the centurion at the death of Jesus in verse 47, certainly this man was innocent. All of these affirmations from the people who are right there that this man did not deserve to be crucified, but the leadership and the crowds will have none of it. And instead of the release of Jesus, they want someone guilty to be released. They want Barabbas to be released, who is guilty of insurrection and of murder. Insurrection is similar to what they're charging Jesus for, falsely, but Barabbas was guilty of it, everything in the text allows us to think of Barabbas as guilty and only guilty, and of murder. You know, it's interesting to me, it sounds a little bit like Moses. Moses could have been charged with insurrection and murder as well. And then we hear the most outrageous words that have ever been said by humanity, crucify, crucify him. And Pilate bends to the urgent demands, to the loud cries that are coming from the people. Pilate capitulates, verse 24, to their demand, and verse 25, to their will. And the final two pillars fall, and the fate of Jesus is sealed. The guilty man is freed, the innocent man will die instead. 
and we look at it, and I hope that still, even though it is familiar to us, I hope that we still have the ability to hear this story of our Lord and be outraged, to be morally outraged at what's going on here, at the, at the cruelty, at the injustice, at the expediency, at the tragedy of all of this, at the blindness of those who were involved in this trial. And yet, of course, if you're, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've heard these things before, you know that in this great miscarriage of justice is our hope. It's all founded right here in this innocent one standing in our place. Have you reached your verdict? You come back into the courtroom as the jury, and the foreman of the jury is asked the question by the judge, and the foreman reads the verdict. It is not uncommon for one of the attorneys to say, I'd like to poll the jury, or have the jury polled. And polling the jury is where each individual member of the jury is asked the question whether or not that's your verdict. There's a sense to which we, we, we answer a question together, guilty or innocent. But as it relates to this question, you will be polled. And, and, and the question to us will be, what is your answer to this? Who do you say that Jesus was? And if you will respond and acknowledge your complicity in his death, and then his identity as the Christ, as the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Lord and Savior of the world, then you will be declared innocent. Jesus is on trial. It should have been us. We should have been the ones who were there and who were declared guilty. And he stands in our place instead. And so the question, what's your verdict? What do you say? Let's pray.